Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we dig in deep to analyze the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. I'm Andy Nelson from thenextreel.com. And I'm Pete Wright, also from The Next Reel. We are at the beginning of this, uh, the MCU roller coaster. We are looking at John Favreau's 2008 film, Iron Man. And uh, back with us today, we have Dr. Arnold Blumberg from the Marvel Cinematic Universe Review Podcast. Welcome back. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Uh, on today's show, we're looking at Iron Man Minute 67. The minute starts with Tony rattling off notes for Jarvis to take into account with the Mark III build. And it ends with entertainment reporter Zoriana Kitt talking about claims regarding Tony suffering from PTSD and being bedridden for weeks. Okay, can we just start with this, the the dissolve from the hero shot of the mask we talked about yesterday yeah. into the computer uh, schematic of the update of the Mark III mask. Yeah. Is that too cheeky for its own good? I don't think so. I, I think you it's like excellent. It? Yeah, I love it. I I, think I do too, and I always wonder. Wait, am I not getting something here? Should I be upset about this? <laughs> no, not at all. I think it's beautiful. Yeah, I think it goes uh, back to the the whole point of John Favreau being just really sharp with the way that he designs his transitions in the in the film mm-hmm. to achieve a really smooth uh, storytelling ride. It just it things move so um, effortlessly from one scene to the next uh, because he designs it this way. I think it's a great way to take us from. Mark one to Mark three in a in a very smooth way, and the way we were talking in the previous episode about some of the thematic stuff that'll keep running through, I think it's beautiful because we're coming right off of that moment we ended on in the last episode, talking about how there's this sort of Tony's absent, but there's still a heroic confrontation to this transition, which also communicates to the audience Iron Man is going to keep evolving. This mm-hmm. is going to be part of what Tony does. He's going to keep refining and altering that armor because that is what he does. And I think that on the one hand, it's just an, a cute you know, little transition. But on the other hand, it carries a lot of meaning and, uh, and sort of keys you into you know, how his mind works. And of course, mm-hmm. it throws us right back into where he's at his best, which is you know, tinkering and thinking ahead and, and planning for the next move. Something I really love about this, it's it's something that actually the filmmakers, when um, Michael Bay and his team were making the Transformers film, is figuring out how do you take something that in comics, it's just something you can easily draw and design and make it work because it's just drawings yeah. um, and turn it into something that feels realistic. I, I think that they did a lot of that in coming up with elements of the various Iron Man suits and something... It's little details like when we're looking at this schematic and you have super tiny text, but you can see written on there, temporal coil, frontal intake, (laughs) armored jaw. Yeah. It's just the fact that they're thinking about these things um, and just all the other details that you have that really helps sell the idea that this is something that Tony is really spending a lot of time on and trying to find the right way to develop it. I think it's just that those details help so much. Another thing that occurs to me while we're going through this again, I haven't seen like this bit in a while, is um, I was I've never been a car guy or like any much into like like technology like cars or that kind of stuff. But obviously, as we're going to see in this minute, particularly Iron Man's entire persona is very much driven haha, by Tony's <laughs> fascination with cars and sports cars and everything. But what I did grow up with was loving Star Trek and so many other things where. 
one of the great joys for me was reading technical manual stuff that was done as if it was within the fictional universe. And all the incredible creativity that would go into coming up with the gobbledygook that's like, no, no, this is real. And here's how this works. <laughs> and it would be amazing to me to see like a complete guidebook to Tony's armors with all this stuff that's all the Easter eggs that's filling the film with that level of reality to it because it makes it feel real. And it makes you feel like, yes, this is grounded in something in reality that someone could build this given the correct skill and the, the level of expertise. And this sequence is one of the ones that that helps an audience along with that, I think. I'm honestly surprised that they really haven't put something like that together. I, I think that there would be too, enough yeah. fans of it. You know, yeah. it's it's interesting. I mean, you look at like the art of Iron Man book and it goes into like all the, the drawings that they had trying to come up with the design elements, but they certainly don't go in depth into the uh, the scientific details of things yeah. that would make it I want work. a coffee table book with every single permutation of the suit for the last 10 years. <laughs> exactly. And, like, and the little lines that tell me, oh, that's where the thing is that does the thing. <laughs> it's like, just give me that book. Uh, speaking to that point, really, the information that we see on all of these monitors that he has around him just helps fill out those details. You've got uh, more schematics of the boots. You've got um, a, another monitor that has um, additional schematics of uh, the helmet, and it kind of turns into, as he's talking about pulling the color from this, uh, this satellite, it, uh, it looks like it pulls up a schematic of the satellite and then the color, and then it starts uh, uh, putting it onto the various parts of the, uh, the suit. And uh, it's, it's it just, I, I'm constantly amazed as I just go through these minutes at the amount of detail that the production design team and the visual effects team really put into coming up with all this stuff. It's, it's just fascinating. It is fascinating. I got to talk about the the user interfaces because oh, it, yeah. it, it's it's really interesting. The first shot that we get, um, you know, the the transition to the the Mark III mask at the very beginning, we are behind Tony and we're looking at the two monitors that are directly in front of him. They have a noticeably different user interface design than the four monitors behind him, right. which are a disaster from a usability standpoint. Like they have this weird shading that's kind of intermittent mm -hmm. throughout them. Like, why would anybody design anything like that? The two monitors in front of him are, I think, are really compelling because, first of all, they look like, you know, an advanced CAD user interface. But the monitor on the right, we actually see, I think this is the only time we see the interface to Jarvis. Uh, uh, we have the the voice uh, the the voice to text transcription going on on the right. You know, connect to the Cisco uh, name drop to Cisco. Have it reconfigure the shell metals. Use the gold titanium alloy from the Seraphim tactical satellite, and we see. Jarvis's little uh, orb microphone picking up the sound, the sensitivity there. So that seems to me to be the the front end to the Jarvis interface, which we've never seen before. It turns out that Jarvis is a computer, but I just think it's so cool because those two monitors are very different than the monitors that are behind are behind him. And I I can't help but kind of hang on that. What is like? Why did he presumably set up these two user interfaces that are are so notably different from well, one another also and the other thing is i also love the fact that this and as things move forward there's this entire virtual world that tony has built around himself through his user interfaces which we then you know will later see in like handheld devices and other things mm -hmm. and it's even throughout his house and and um never having focused on that specific point until you brought it up 
everything convinces me that absent anything that would contradict this, I could imagine that if he swung around and specifically wanted to be working on one of the other monitors for whatever reason, maybe it would then instantly change to a more user-friendly version. Like maybe mm-hmm. that's a resting display while he's not, you know, directly engaged with that one. Yeah. Because right, right. there's a fluidity to this sort of proprietary stuff he's created that seems like it adapts to whenever he needs it. And it's also it also comes to a point that I've talked about elsewhere that I always found as a particularly compelling thing, which is that this is a guy who like builds a suit of armor. And I've always felt that his house and his user interface and Jarvis is basically like the revelation that he's always been in a suit of armor. His house is a suit of armor. He talks to Jarvis in the helmet. He talks to Jarvis in the house. He isn't really exposed as a person. He's the boy in the bubble. Yeah, exactly. Who never grew up. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, here he is still, you know, secretly building things in his basement. So very much so. Yeah, yeah. He still goes to the basement to to work on things. (laughs) That's right. And and has a giant padlock on the door. It's, you know, (laughs) fancy digital thumbprint. But that's, you know, that was my basement. (laughs) (laughs) I also love the fact that as we see the colors start to come in on the displays and he just kind of offhandedly says the thing about throw the the red in there. Yeah. That most of like that is happening as he begins to be distracted by the end of this minute of the news item. And it's like, yeah, I'm going to go and tool around and go party for a bit. And what's amazing to me is like what in another movie would be front and center in the shot. Maybe this is also credit to Favreau be like the like the shot would be watching that armor become red and gold because i was like now it's becoming the iron man we know from the comics and yet we see that happening behind him on the monitors and it's almost like an afterthought well it starts it starts the gold process we don't get the red until the next minute we don't get the red till after yeah right but yeah but still but it is it is very much the case that i think speaks to how his brain works where he he is very much kind of the the macroscopic idea guy who kind of puts it into motion and then allows Jarvis or or in some cases dummy and you to to help but generally have them do all the work and he's he's just kind of the puppet master and i guess you could say yeah very much the final minute as he's looking through this always is, I, I found particularly meaningful for some reason first of all we get to see a close-up of the of the prototype of the mask that he's drawn all over and you know a port here sense alt sensor here uh which i think is just really cool um but he puts it up as he's looking, he's looking through it almost as if a, a protective barrier, again, back, hold, literally holding up the mask between who he is in in his garage and the version of himself that he's seeing frozen on the TV, which is, you know, Tony at not at his best. Yep. Uh, right. He's sort of stumbling around at the press conference and he'd done something that the world had seen as ridiculous and stupid. And and um, and he's protecting himself from that all as he's asking Jarvis, you know, this is referencing the Stark Industries, you know, whatever fireman's ball or whatever it is. Uh, and he's saying did we get an invite for that? And he is stark. Like, that's such a, <laughs> a, I find that such a humorous moment. Yeah. I love the touch with, like, he's got to look at himself through the mask. Yeah. yeah. That's a great point. There's a lot of very deep stuff happening in this movie that I think, you know, like, it's such a great adventure story. But there's also some really deep character stuff going on throughout. 
Yeah. And, and that moment in particular, I, I can't help but think back to, you know, what would it have been like on set to figure out, you know, whose whose inspiration was it to that? You know, I need to hold up the mask right now. You know, it, mm-hmm. what what made that meaningful on set? Um, because it's it really is. It's it's uh, as you said, I think yesterday that this movie is punching out of its weight class. You know, I mean, it's it's doing some things that are um that that are outside of what it needs to do. I, I would also say as a note, the ice pack has made its way to his shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> it, it has. And it, and also in the wider shots, you actually see that he, he actually does have some bruises and dings on his arms. So it's like, okay, where he's finally showing some, uh, some injury to these, <laughs> the countless, the countless injuries. Yes. Finally, finally. <laughs> I was uh, trying to find out if there is such a thing as a Seraphim tactical satellite. I, uh, <laughs> I, I apparently there isn't, but there are tactical satellites, and obviously by by using an alloy that they use, since they are uh, so high up in the atmosphere, I guess it makes sense. It's something that uh, that can prevent icing at high altitudes. And he goes with a gold titanium alloy, and apparently a gold titanium alloy, um, uh, it's. It wasn't weirdly. It wasn't until 2016 that uh, researchers discovered a titanium gold alloy that is actually up to four times harder than titanium. Mm. But by creating alloys, you do uh, yield uh, a stronger, more tensile, harder uh, metals, and so it, it makes sense that they would go with an alloy. And then um, at some point, Robert Downey Jr. did make the comment uh, when. Uh, a, and a reporter asked him about uh, wearing the suit uh, after this first film. And he said the suit fit him like a gold titanium glove, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is just a, uh, a fun line. If I remember right, this that's only the first movie that they actually wound up using uh, such an extensive use of a practical suit. Cause I know a couple of the people that worked on the suit and, and were actually like involved in, in, Dressing him on the set and like building the actual practical suit. But very quickly after that, I think as soon as two, they were starting to segue into using more and more and almost entirely CGI rather than put him in it. But that I think also is a great thing about this movie is you're seeing a lot of things eventually with the suit, even with the initial one, that everything is very real. It feels very concrete. And uh, and I think that helps with the the whole idea of believability for an audience just being introduced to this world even in previous minutes when we were looking at the uh, all of the beauty shots of the mark ii when he first puts that on and it's it's uh, doing all of its tests even that was mostly a real suit Mm -hmm. that somebody was in with just cg enhancements as all the parts were moving around yeah so it does give it a much more physical feel and it works uh very effectively in this film I mean, arguably, it kind of works well that, like, later on, if you ditch most of that and say, okay, now we're going full CGI, okay, because you've now trained the audience to have an investment in the reality of that suit. So, you know, maybe it doesn't matter so much anymore to keep reinforcing that. I would still argue that very often practical stuff still works better. But but it does help to have built that foundation and then say, okay, now we can have him do crazier and crazier things because you believe that he can do that. And that he can build on that original idea. Yeah, by the time we get to the nanobots kind of yeah. just spreading out over his yeah. body. Yeah. Sure. I, you know, I, it's it's effectively <laughs> moves the story forward, which is what we really want. But mm-hmm. but by now they're <laughs> earning it. They're earning that. Yeah. Um I, I do 
I don't want to belabor the computer stuff, but you know, I think we were you were talking about like Dell monitors on the back, and then the um, we've got the Apple 24 inch cinema displays up in front of him. I can't help but go back to 24. You guys remember season one of 24? Uh, with I've Kiefer never Sutherland? seen it, but well, the the you know the big um, uh, the big spoiler in that is that all the bad guys. All the good guys in CTU used apples and and cinema displays, and all the bad guys used non apple stuff. So, as you're, if you knew that going in, you knew exactly what what the big, you know, how the thing was going to play out by what technology they were using. And and I sort of feel like this is a nice way to mix it up. You know, we we don't know where Tony's allegiance is eventually uh, because he's using mixed hardware. And there so you go. See, uh, this that, is, that's nice. This yeah. is a beautiful thematic touch. Is that it speaks to the conflict in Tony's mind. Yeah. <laughs> where he is is he a mac is he a pc That's we'll never right. know we don't need to worry about that yeah <laughs> i love that yeah uh this minute we also get to see tony drinking his his uh health drink that uh nasty looking green drink that he's got uh, in the cup that he's uh swilling uh, this i apparently this is an idea that robert downey jr had and uh, you know we know that he had been uh, recovering himself and so uh, i think that he thought this would be an interesting idea as as something that would perhaps signal that this is a person who is still trying to heal from the uh the palladium and the radioactivity and everything else that's going on in his body with these the pieces of shrapnel so he has this recovery drink it's a liquid chlorophyll drink and according to a recipe i found online it includes kale leaves uh, apple, coconut water, pineapple juice, uh, tonic water with quinine, a uh, fresh ginger, and protein powder, and uh, that's uh, that's what he's uh, downing right there. Half of those well, ingredients sounds... sound good, and half sound awful. <laughs> yeah, and together they sound toxic. Yeah, it looks terrible too. So it's... yeah, it does. The way yeah. it it it, uh, it just sticks to the sides. Yeah, it, it just clings to that glass. Ugh. <laughs> but at least I will say, at least he is actually drinking something. That, yeah. I, that you know, kudos for that because there have been times already in this film where he's uh, doing his uh, you know the fake drink out of an empty cup, but trying to mm. make it look real. And this this at least looks real. And there are some where his cup is just upside down. <laughs> that, right there, we found the upside down <laughs> coffee mug that he drinks out yeah. of later. Um, we we go to uh, his attention is drawn over to the TV as you've already mentioned. We have uh, Zoriana Kit talking about him and uh, this. This event that is happening at the uh, Disney Concert Hall. It's Tony Stark's third annual benefit for the Firefighters Family Fund. Apparently, according to Zoriana, it is it has become the place to be for LA High Society. So it, it piques Tony's interest. Zoriana Kitt is an entertainment reporter. I don't really know much about her. But I found this this letter that I just wanted to read. If you uh, can, can bear with me for a few minutes. This was a really interesting letter that she wrote um, after Stan Lee passed away. Oh, okay. Uh, she put, put it on her Facebook page. I am in the United States today because of Stan Lee. In 1995, I was a young journalist fresh out of college writing for a local paper in Canada. I was excited to be taking my first trip to Los Angeles to attend a Hollywood movie premiere. Shortly after arriving, I knew I wanted to stay and hired an immigration attorney to begin my green card process. Part of that involves getting letters of recommendation from professionals who could attest to my work as a journalist. 
At the film's premiere, I met Stan Lee and asked him if I could interview him for my Canadian newspaper. He said yes, and a few days later, I was in his West L.A. offices. I don't remember much of what we talked about, but Stan was very sweet and kind. When the interview was over, I shook his hand, thanked him for his time, and I walked toward the door. I wondered to myself if I should ask him to write a letter of recommendation for my green card. I began a frantic conversation with myself. Ask him, ask him. No, don't. It would be inappropriate. He doesn't know you. Do it. It can't hurt. The worst he can say is no. I reached the door, my back to his office. One more step and I'd be out. The door behind me would close, and so would the opportunity. I turned around. Mr. Lee, I blurted, I am applying for my green card because I want to live and work here. Do you think you might be able to write me a letter of recommendation for my green card? To my surprise, Mr. Lee told me he thought my plan to get a green card was a fabulous idea and that he'd be delighted to do so. The result was the letter you see in the photograph, which she posted. A year later, I was at my one-on-one -on -one interview with the Immigration and Naturalization Services for the final approval in my green card process. The INS officer assigned to my case was not pleasant looking at all. He did not smile or show any emotion. He went over every piece of documentation I had, inspecting it front and back, and in some cases, holding it up to the light. It was nerve-wracking. I sat quietly, sweating, hoping that everything was in order. As he went along, his expressionless face gave me zero indication if this meeting was going in the right direction or not. Then he came to Mr. Lee's letter and stopped. His eyes got wide. He picked it up and held it to the light. He touched the Spider-Man logo with his finger. Then he turned away from me and showed it to the nearest INS officer. Was something wrong? Please, God, let there be no problems. Why do they need to bring in another person to inspect it? Then I saw why. In that moment, this stern-looking INS man and his equally serious co-worker reverted to being 12-year-old boys as they passed that Spider-Man letter back and forth, chuckling at how cool it was. My green card was approved. When the very first Iron Man movie starring an as-yet-unproven Robert Downey Jr. was shooting in downtown Los Angeles, blocks away from that same INS office, I was on that set, hired to literally play myself, Zoriana Kitt, the journalist. Seeing my face and my name on a giant screen in a Marvel movie that kicked off an entire universe of films still thriving today is not something my wildest dreams could have imagined. None of this could have been a possibility had Mr. Lee not written the INS that letter nine years earlier. Thank you, Mr. Lee, for taking a chance on this Ukrainian-Canadian immigrant by writing your letter, which paved the way for a brand new start for me in the United States. You altered my life for the better, and I hope I did you proud. May you rest in peace. Oh, that's lovely. That's very beautiful. How cool is that? Yeah. Like, who would have known? <laughs> right. That makes that whole little moment in the movie now have so much, like, depth of meaning. Anybody hears that, like, you can't look at that again now without realizing you know, where she came from and what that's about. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's very cool. It's a really, it's a really neat little, uh, little thing that, uh, that happened. And, and now, and I just love that it, you know, went full circle and she ended up being in yeah. the first uh, film of the MCU. The suit always fits eventually. <laughs> oh, there you go. Thanks, Stan. Indeed. Um, I don't think I have anything else uh, in this minute. What about you guys? Okay, I just have I, I have one more note, and it's actually your note, Andy, but I don't think mm. you said it. Uh, and it is at, in the background when he's trying on the mask, and I got all, uh, you know, uh, weepy about holding the mask up. On the screen behind it is the design of what's inside the mask, and it's really scary. Yeah. Yeah, we, we got to see that uh, in a, a few minutes ago when he actually first puts it on. And it it's like a weirdly inverted Darth Vader helmet yeah. or something. I don't know what it's it also is. very so cool. skull-like. It looks very skull-like when you look at it. Yeah. Yeah. 
that's an interesting bit of, of uh, uh, I, I don't know, um, sort of visual metaphor, too. Like, here we are playing with all that Tony does to to put this mask on and kind of be the boy in the bubble. And yet, you know, from from the inside, it's just it, it's sort of raw. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it, like layers of, have been peeled away uh, successfully or successively. Yeah. Uh, until we get to this, the skeleton. It's like the uh, paradox of the suit is he puts on the suit to protect himself, but it actually winds up exposing him more to the world than when he's not wearing it. That, exactly. That's much better way to say it than I did. Well, that's <laughs> <It's> okay. <laughs> <laughs> you said it well, too. <laughs> that officially is all I've got, Andy. Wonderful. Well, uh, Arnold, thanks so much for joining us again today. Uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, you want to remind, remind everybody where they can find you out there online? Sure. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. The Dead, which is where you'll see me just ramble about all sorts of things, including this kind of stuff. And um, also, please check out my publishing company where we do nonfiction books on superheroes and zombies and Star Trek and Doctor Who and everything else that a pop culture fan would want. And it's at atbpublishing.com. Well, everybody, that is it for today's show. Thanks so much for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to the show for free at marvelmovieminute.com. Join us over in our Discord chat room and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Next Reel. And if you like what we do and you want to support us and get some cool stuff, become a patron over at patreon.com slash The Next Reel. Until next time, true believers. Mm-hmm.